Hello and welcome to the Philanthropy Australia podcast. Our guest this week is Dr. Erin Kuo, Chief Impact Officer at Impact Investing Group. Erin has a BA in Environmental Science from the University of California at Berkeley and a doctorate from Monash University. She currently holds a position as Adjunct Fellow at the Centre for Social Impact at Swinburne University and continues to have a strong interest in how values and value intersect. We began our discussion by talking about that big philosophical question, how much is enough and how do you measure the impact? Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about this question and I feel like it's the question that comes up more often than any as people are thinking about managing for impact and investing for impact. It's really how do you know it's enough and what is enough? Um, and I mean, the the real answer is it's not black and white. It's not a universal answer. You can't say it's, it's X or it's Y. But the different ways that I have been thinking about this um, is really, is it enough for whom is a really good starting point. Um, so when you start thinking about your beneficiary, who it is that you're trying to help, one of the best ways that you can know if it's enough is asking them. So if you get the chance to ask the, the group or the people that you're trying to help, did this help you? Did it make a meaningful difference in your life? Would you repeat the intervention? Would you extend this to other people? And do you think it would help them? Those kinds of questions get you closer to knowing, one, whether there was an effect at all. So was it helpful? And, you know, I think that subjective question of, is it enough to help um, of one vulnerable person um, in a way that really transformed their lives often is a deeply personal reflection. But I think that's a really good place to start. And I often feel more comfortable with trusting your sense as a person of knowing there's a feeling often that you've made a transformation or a difference in someone's life. Um, and having that human connection and conversation often will tell you whether that's mattered and whether that justifies the action you've taken, the investment you've made. Um, So I think that's a really good starting point when we think about enough. And then the other way to think about enough is to really think about thresholds, um, think about baselines, think about data. So in the case of solving a particular problem where we know how big it is, for example, um, if we know, if we're tackling unemployment, for example, and we know the unemployment statistics, Um, We can start setting thresholds around what constitutes meaningful work, living wages, um, what constitutes a significant contribution towards the problem, the unemployment problem, the number of jobs. Um, So sometimes you have data that you can work with where you can set targets based on the investment size and say, this feels like a reasonable impact to have. And if we at least create X number of jobs at this kind of living wage, um, then, you know, it makes me feel like it's it's worth this sort of effort or the investment being channeled in this direction. So that's, you know, a data-driven kind of perspective is another way. And then I would say the third way is really... Um, about thinking about what happens in absence of you doing anything. So, you know, you can think, if I don't make this investment, if I don't take this action, what happens? And then if I do, what happens? And does that feel like it's sufficient to justify the action or investment that I've made? 
Um, and off, you know, we can think about that in terms of climate change, for example, we've got science-based targets and we know we're all collectively working towards something. And in absence of an intervention, what kind of emissions profile am I generating? What happens if I do nothing? And then what contribution am I making by taking that action? And is it working towards achieving that goal? So I think there's a few different ways that we can at least use some frameworks to think about what enough is. So there are a couple of things that, are, that I'd like to pick up on there. One of them in the, you, the first part of your answer was very much about the personal connection to impact investing. Now, I suppose the conventional view for those people who aren't active in the investing field is that in some ways, investing is actually driven by the need for revenue or the need to actually show some return. If you're actually making these decisions on a personal basis, how much more difficult is it to assess what you are satisfied with? So as a financial return, what do you think? Are you, are you talking about? So- no, I, th- I think beyond the financial return. How, how do you how do you how do you work out at a personal level what constitutes a good return? Yeah, I think you're right. When when it's personal, often it comes from a different place, which is a little bit cognitively at odds with how we think about returns in general. Mm. Um, but I think that's okay, and it's really important for us to get comfortable with that idea that a lot of what we're doing in trying to address complex social problems and interdependent um, complex issues and systems requires the complexity that comes from our lifetime of experience and different types of knowing and that very personal place. So I think, you know, and traditional philanthropy, I think historically has come from that place where how do you know if you've made a difference in someone's life or if you continue to do it? Often it is a personal feeling. There's a connection you have with a movement, um, something you see, something you witness, a conversation you have, a story you hear. Um, maybe you get to sit down and, and speak with somebody and, and you have that personal connection and you get the feeling that this, this matters. Um, so I think that's one thing just to preface it with is that on a personal level, if we are making an assessment from a very human place, um, it's not going to be clear. but that's okay. Like we have to be able to, to allow ourselves to come from that place. Um, and as we're thinking about, you know, is it enough? And you're right with investing different from philanthropy, there's some expectation of what is that money going to return to you in terms of your both financial return, as well as the, the social benefit. Um, and how do you know those things are enough? How does it, how do you justify that decision? Um, and I really do think that you have two types of investors. You've got the institutional investor that is really coming from the place of wanting the data, thinking about risk management, wanting to uphold their fiduciary duties and needing some evidence. But they're also human beings that are sitting in those seats. So they've got both going on, but they have more of a need to take a data-driven kind of decision-making perspective. And then you've got more individual type investors, high net worth investors, family offices, um, some foundations that are made up of, you know, groups of individuals. And I think in those cases, um, 
you know, there's usually passion and mission and connection to purpose. Um, and I think there is more leeway to bring that personal assessment of, you know, how do we know this has helped someone? I think being deliberate in your process and rigorous and asking the questions, but allowing a subjective interpretation for how you know that um, is, is really appropriate in those circumstances. So to go to the second point you made a moment ago about having data and measurement and having, in a sense, a kind of a rigorous process, which you just alluded to then, it is, as you um, said a moment ago, there is a kind of cognitive uh, tension there between the, the personal impulse and the rational measurement process. Does it matter in this uh, area, in impact investing, that there appears to be, you know, that on the face of it, irreconcilable um, personal um, assessment and the, the, the old-fashioned rigour of the data uh, that can tell us and evaluate what contribution we're making? I think they have to exist side by side and we have to rely on both in this work. I think the danger of moving towards just data-driven, more financial accounting type approaches is you often will lead to perverse outcomes and you're going to undermine the purpose of the work that you're, you're seeking to achieve. And it requires um, a human perspective to often be considerate outside of what might fit into an algorithm or a formula. So the, while the rigor I think is really, really important and there are increasingly agreed best practices and standards in terms of the types of questions you would ask, um, the, the considerations you would make thinking about who you're impacting, how much you're impacting people in what direction, um, the types of measurement approaches you might take. So there's increasing um, recognition of what good practice looks like in terms of your process. But if we defer to you know, your more financial accounting systems and your formal kind of how do we determine that from um, a data-driven perspective, you could focus on, well, let's try and minimize our carbon emissions, for example, and miss the point that the way in which you're doing that is actually impacting people's lives quite negatively. And that does require a human balanced perspective to stop and be thoughtful and bring that to the table. Um, And so I think it is that combination of both building the the foundations of a process where you are deliberate in stepping through questions, looking at the evidence and the data, but also allowing yourself to be, you know, holistic and human and say, and what else could we be missing? And what does that mean? Take your phrase then, that human-based perspective, which you refer to. Has that, do you think, played any role perhaps in slowing the uptake of impact investing among the broader Uh, investing community? I think it has because it feels scary. And I think people feel, my sense is there is a lack of confidence, particularly at the beginning about what the right way to do these things are, what the right way to make decisions are. And it can feel foreign, overly technical, um, difficult to understand, difficult to reconcile those things cognitively. And I don't think that has to be true. And I feel that people who are In my role in particular, part of the work is to give people the tools and the confidence that 
a lot of this should come from a place of um, we ha- we all have the skills and intuition, and if you come with integrity and you follow particular principles, um, it it shouldn't be that hard to do. So I do think it has been a barrier for some people to get the confidence to participate in this and understand what it is. And an equivalent or a parallel, when I was in the U.S. many years ago, um, working in private equity at a clean tech. Fund. I remember talking to institutional investors about this clean tech fund, and then the word clean tech was really creating a lot of anxiety and saying it felt new, it felt riskier, they didn't know how to do it, they didn't know how to benchmark it. And we had to really talk about this is traditional infrastructure that's in our everyday lives that we've been working with for a very long time. It's energy, it's water, it's waste. These are systems that we've lived within our whole lives. So mm-hmm. Um, it's really not, it's just a bundling of it in the language. And I think the same can be true with impact investing that, you know, a lot of these things, we actually do have the skills to understand and make decisions and meaningful assessments, but um, it's come together in a particular discipline that I think people do feel because they're required to be thoughtful and not just plug into a formula. Um, it's not just traditional portfolio construction um, and you don't have someone who can just, you know, take in your details and then spit out the answer for you. Um, I think that has been um, a challenge for for some people coming into this space. So there's been some discussion about this already. And I wonder if, if you agree with the observation that COVID, in a sense, has shaken up some of those pre-existing conventions and has made it more likely that people will see what they need to address and where they need to put their resources so that there is a very strong likelihood that there will be more impact investing in the short to medium term as a consequence of that COVID cost. Would you agree with that? Yes and no. I I think that COVID has definitely highlighted really important issues that drive this, the growth of the sector. So um, how we think about value, how we think about what matters, um, the need to support people who are vulnerable, the need to support systems that provide care and sustenance, our food systems, um, the need to think about meaningful employment, um, all of those things, you know, I think most of us who live through this really challenging year with COVID would say, you know, maybe some of us hadn't thought about the value of our food systems or the value of our caregiver, caregiving networks, our healthcare workers, our educators, our aged care workers. And I think now more than ever, it does become really evident how interdependent we all are and how critical our need to support those life-giving systems and that life-giving work um, is to our survival and our thriving and what really matters to us. So I definitely think the awareness of what matters and the desire to reorient how we support those things is, is more evident. So that why conversation, why it matters. I still think there's a question for a lot of people as to how to do it. Mm, okay. So what do we do about that? Um, it's a really good question. And I mean, I, I personally am grappling with this a little bit as well, because what I think you're seeing is that people who are providing some of the investment solutions, um, I think there's some really great innovation coming out of this period that is going to be met with the demand for those types of investment products. So you will see growth in that way. And that's 
really great. Um, I also think you'll see some messiness in people taking advantage of that demand and people not knowing what that looks like. And it may be driving some perverse outcomes. Mm. So you may see some more products out there labeled as impact or, you know, a bit more sort of impact washing, greenwashing type strategies. Um, and, you know, that's just part and, and part of the growth of a sector. So I think just people staying aware, I suppose, and trying to understand the different benefits and the different approaches, the different teams that are coming to market with these solutions is really important. Um, and I, I think, you know, this idea of co-design becomes really important at this stage. So how do we think about communities and community investment, for example, community models of ownership, um, beneficiaries with lived experience of particular problems getting involved in the design of new funds that are coming to market and different groups coming together to think through this together. So not just coming from a top-down approach or one party in the market. But if you get a co-design approach where you've got people who are experiencing problems, people with different skills, um, people with different access to different types of resources coming together to create solutions, it's more powerful and more, I think, important than ever that we take that kind of approach. Is there much evidence of that happening? I think I see it a lot more in the U.S., of course, being from the U.S., you know, maybe Mm -hmm. some of my network, I get more visibility into that. But particularly around the community investment models, I really like seeing what's happening where communities are coming together, for example, and pooling capital, borrowing capital together as a group, buying up land within their community, and then having a say as to how that how they develop that land together, and also participating in the profit, for example. I think those types of models you see pride, placemaking, you know, diversity. You see so many interesting things coming out of those models that feel like more appropriate solutions um, for the scale of the problem, um, as well as that sort of innovation that you couldn't manufacture if you didn't have all those people together. So I do see some of those things coming together, I think particularly around place-based investing. I suppose the interesting thing about that is that it marries up the deeply personal commitment with the need for kind of community embrace. There's a, there's a kind of appropriate logic to that kind of collaborative exercise. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think when you've got people, and, I, you know, one of the partners that we worked with this year, we've been trying very hard at IIG to find the right investment solution together with some of our partners at a nonprofit called Launch Housing. And they support people who are experiencing homelessness, their missions to end homelessness. And we had come across them at one of our properties where we were trying to activate our end of trip facilities um, to support people who are experiencing homelessness to see if the showers or the toilets might be of benefit. Um, When we realized that wasn't going to work with them, we, we engaged in a deeper conversation with them about, well, what would be helpful? We did an immersion day where our whole team and staff went out on site, worked at crisis accommodation centers, worked with social workers, did cleanup jobs, but really engaging with people with a lived experience of homelessness. And we thought if we take our time and we really don't come from an investment team perspective and our investors sort of starting point 
but we really consult with and work with people who are having a lived experience of doing the social work of have experiencing homelessness themselves. Where do we get to? And I think that what you're just saying, that sort of natural cohesion between, you know, different types of interests when you're creating these investment products, if you have those at the start um, and you have them authentically at the table, you're going to end up in a very different place than if you try to plug them in later and you're trying to just navigate through some of the barriers, if you like, and get your social license to operate, for example. I think that's a very different set of outcomes and approach than in the very beginning, bringing those different people together and being vulnerable in saying, well, what does this mean for us? You know, when we bring people together, they might ask for something that's very difficult mm-hmm. and it might require a notion of something that we would think of as a trade-off. But being brave enough, I think, just to step into that not knowing where you end up leads you to a very different place. That's a really interesting framing of that because one of the words that we don't often talk about in this discussion is proximity, it seems to me. And what you've identified there is being close to what you're, you know, what you're working with. How important is it? It's, I think it's such a critical point. And I, a year or two ago, that word proximity did come up for me as well. And I was thinking, you know, we had, I think it was a management retreat or a board retreat, and we were all sitting together and I was presenting some of our thinking about our impact strategy. And I was thinking, how much more powerful would it be to have a person with a lived experience in the room talk about this rather than me? And I just thought that the engagement and the humanity that naturally comes out in people is so much more powerful. Your desire to really solve a problem when you've made a human connection with someone is so different from um, thinking about it theoretically or rationally or on paper. And I think. You know, I love, I met this woman recently who was a doctor and she had designed um, some safety briefings and seminars through theater and song and performance. Mm. And she was saying that um, when you approach people from a different part of their being and you don't just give them a manual and a procedure or data, um, you can actually change someone's behavior more meaningfully and they connect with it from a different place and you actually get different outcomes. So I like that idea. And I think that's exactly what proximity does too, is it brings you closer to that thing we were talking about earlier, the ability to be a human being and not just rely on evidence and data and what's on paper. So let's go back a step further to your opening remarks, which included that, that very elusive but compelling question about what are the risks of not taking action how do you how do you navigate that one because that seems to me to be the the kind of 64 million dollar question yeah it's true it requires a little bit of being a a futurist and Mm. knowing what what might or could happen um well one of the interesting frameworks that have evolved in the impact management space is through um, the impact management project and others is our impact classifications and this idea that we can look at a portfolio and we can start to classify our investments as those that 
absolutely are causing harm today. Those that may be causing harm and maybe we don't have the data to know or we're not sure which direction they'll be going. Um, and then those that create different types of solutions or benefits. And I think um, in some cases, when you know we look at our investment portfolio today and we look at some of the organizations that most of us are holding in, in one way or another through our super funds or, or other ways, in some cases, it is very evident where we know some of the harm that's being created and externalized, not being accounted for, whether that's through, you know, environmental impacts and pollution, that's the more traditional one. And we, we know more about that now. I think that data is there. In other cases, that may cause harm bucket is really big, I think, in a lot of our portfolios, partly because we don't have really great data. There's not the transparency and we don't know. But I think even starting to pay attention to that and saying, okay, well, if it may cause harm, what might we want to know? And what are the levers we can pull to start understanding that better and or transitioning out of some of those assets because that's still not good enough? So if you don't know, so if you do know it's causing harm, you know, one of the things I've said to some, some um, people that I was working with recently was you can create some policy responses once you know the harm that's being create, um, produced or created. So you can say, do we want to engage in an advocacy strategy where we work with those companies, work with those managers and try and reduce the harm? That's a, a totally fine strategy. Um, and that's a response you can take. Or do you want to look at a hold period where if there's no change, you divest? Or... Yeah. Do you want to set a threshold that if you know a particular harm has been created or a breach, there's a risk there, and then you divest? So there's different policy responses you can take when you pay attention to what you think the harm will be or is. Um, And then when you have the category of you're not sure, you don't know what's going to happen, or you don't have the data to understand the harm, that's a bit more nuanced. But I think for many of us, as we start getting our heads across it and paying attention to that deliberately, we can then say, well, the strategy there might be to get data. Let's find out what the board composition is. Let's find out the way they're working with communities. Because inherent in that is also risk, not just you know, the positive impact or the negative harm, but there's also risk for us as investors. So I think just trying in that bucket to get clearer on how do we get it out of that May category into a clear, well, what is the harm here and what can we do to respond or what is the solution that's happening here? And just what are the levers we can pull through some of the data providers or advocacy strategies, et cetera, to, to clarify that. And then that can help us understand the management response. I mean, conventional investing is clearly uh, all about risk. You know, everyone who invests understands the risk. Do you think there is a finer grade appreciation of the risk in impact investing or that the risks are bigger or that certainly the risks are different, but do people feel more nervous about those risks? I think people do feel more nervous about the risks and they are both the same and different. So I think that's that's why it does feel like it's more and it's also less familiar. But I think what jumps to mind for me um, the owner of our business through Small Giants, uh, Danny Elmagor, said once, he said, you know, if you tell people you're on a diet, you say, I'm not eating ice cream anymore. And then someone sees you eating ice cream. They're very willing to have a go at you. Like they'll say, you said you weren't going to eat ice cream. <laughs> and then 
And then they kind of, you know, have a go at you. Whereas if you never said anything to begin with, you can eat as much ice cream as you want and no one's ever going to say anything to you. And that's a little bit what's happening with impact investing is like you declare yourself to be setting out with this positive impact intent. And so not only do you have your traditional sort of financial risks to manage, but you also have the impact risks to manage and you're being held to account because you've said this is what you're trying to do. So I think that added layer of accountability and scrutiny is really positive, but you do open yourself up to different types of risks in that way. And I think that's where some people get a little bit more um, uncomfortable saying, well, I don't know how to manage those because they're newer mm-hmm. and they feel less familiar um, and if not more out of my control. Um, But I think if we flipped that a little bit too, and we said, well, if we deliberately decide to not pay attention, they're definitely happening. Mm. So do things like um, the UN Sustainable Development Goals provide some level of reassurance or certainty or comfort in those circumstances? The way that I've thought about the UN Sustainable Development Goals has been I think they're really helpful categories and labels for change that get us as a global community to identify the same problems and how we work towards solutions together. It's at a very high level. I think we can now all think about, we care about poverty. We care about hunger. You know, this started with the millennium development goals prior and, Mm. you know, development work prior to that, but you know, we can talk about equality, we can talk about sustainable cities. So I think the language and the consistency of of many different parties coming together and the clarity of that framework is really useful. Um, It's not very granular and it doesn't go beyond those kind of thematic conversations for most of us. I think unless you're working in usually a multilateral kind of agency or development banking or in policy and particularly in a developing context, often the the granularity of the tools isn't there. And I know a lot of sectors are working towards that, including um, someone here in Australia, Fabian Michaud, helped lead some work around developing the private equity guidelines for um, using the SDGs. So I think for different parts of the sector, we're starting to see how this becomes more material and relevant. What do we do about it? Knowing that these are the broad thematics and goals And now what? I think up until now, it's really just been a bit of a marker, like a beacon. Yes, we're working on this. Yes, we're working on this. Um, And if you're interested, here we are. But it doesn't go beyond that. And I think over the next few years, hopefully we'll see um, an evolution in the sophistication of tools that helps us match up the different types of work towards those unified goals and puts it in an appropriate context for where we're coming from with our work. Okay. You used a phrase a moment ago, paying attention. So that, you know, as an investor, you're you're paying attention. What does that actually look like in your view? Yeah, well, I think that sometimes it's helpful to to think about the opposite. So not paying attention is you just put your money somewhere and then you don't look ever again. (laughs) It just sits there and it does whatever it does. And I think the paying attention can come in just different layers beyond that. So having a look at it and trying to um, understand, and I have to say, I'm not, I've never been, I would have never called myself a finance person. Um, But I, once I realized the power of finance in terms of both creating negative and positive change in the world, at some point in my twenties, I went from being an environmental scientist and a teacher to working at Morgan Stanley, because I 
wanted to understand the language of it because it feels really, for me, and still sometimes yucky and technical and, and hard. So paying attention can be really hard, particularly when the language that's being used feels foreign and you feel alienated and you feel stupid, not understanding what people are talking about. And I think giving people the tools and the networks and the forums and the spaces to come together and say, it's not only um, possible, but it's really important that we start getting some literacy around this to having a look at what it is that we are invested in. I think most people have a super fund and don't know what that is. Don't don't even understand that the super fund is invested in other fund managers, which are invested in companies and that you as an individual have some stake or ownership in these companies and that that's having an impact negative or positive in the world. And I think just that literacy for some people of getting to understand the mechanics of that is a first step and then progressing that literacy towards, okay, and what does that mean based on what I care about and the world I'm going to inherit? So, you know, for many of us, again, if I take that, if I continue that super fun analogy, you know, you take your nurses, for example, and when they retire, um, is their super fund investing in things that help set them up for the type of retirement they want to have, not just financial stability, but a world that is healthy, connected, doesn't have a lot of crime, has affordable housing, has a proper healthcare system. And I think that our investments should be not just setting us up with some financial quantum at the end, but the paying attention is how are we getting there? What is that doing to the world? Because that's the world we're left with at the end of that you know, exit as well. So just that in- increasing kind of literacy and understanding that and then to different degrees is important. And the point you made earlier about people having the confidence to take that step too. Um, which comes with the, the literacy, I'd, I'd suggest. So one of the interesting things that occurred in Australia back in the 80s and 90s when a lot of previously government-held instrumentalities were privatised created a, a, a whole range of opportunities for what became known as mum and dad investors to actually get a stake in what was you know, Telstra and Qantas and Commonwealth Bank, you know, all those sorts of things that had kind of been fundamental to Australia's sense of itself. The literacy and the engagement of that particular demographic was was quite strong. Is there a likelihood of a particular demographic in Australia turning its mind to impact investing? Obviously not in those huge numbers, but do you see that there are groups within the Australian community who are perhaps more predisposed to the idea of taking the risk, embracing the need for extra literacy and developing their confidence in this space so that they make those commitments? Yeah, I think I, I think I see it coming from lots of different directions. I think the traditional groups that we tend to hear are driving this change tend to be, um, you know, the next gen sort of, you know, the younger generations, the millennials, I think you hear that more women inheriting wealth are bringing certain, you know, feminist values and caregiving ideals and, you know, to um, thinking about their investment portfolios and their wealth. So I think that um, those are more the traditional groups that we tend to hear about, but I think it's across the board. I really do. And I think it's matched by 
the opportunity coming in the market. So it's it's coming from people, it's coming from institutions, it's coming from all directions, you know, it's coming from different information feeds. And I think one example, and I, I this will be interesting to see what happens, but um, Future Super, we did a collaboration with them last year and they um, launched sort of a $5 minimum investment product to help retail investors. So your mom and dad investors get into um, renewable energy investing uh, and a, a greener, a greener, I wouldn't say it's all renewable energy, but, you know, climate bonds and some other things in there as well, um, type of investment. And because it was such a low minimum, you get people who are willing to try it, I think. So that, that, point of entry, the barriers to entry being reduced and the scariness of, you know, for me, how much is $5 worth or $50 worth or $100 worth, then you start to at least build that literacy through practice. And I think people who are even slightly curious, who have heard about it from one way or another or care about it, connected with it, then have the opportunity to try and go a bit deeper. And I use that product to put a small amount of money for each of my small children who, you know, at the time were, I think, five and eight. Um, and I said, I, you know, I took a piece of paper and I showed, you know, $100. And I said, now, if you put $100 in the bank, the bank then lends that money to lots of people and companies, and they might do good things and bad things. They might create energy. They might, you know, do bad things to the air. They might, you know, build businesses, create jobs. There's lots of things that money does, and they'll give you $101 back at the end of the year. <laughs> and if you put it in this other place, you might get $95 back at the end of the year, or you might get $105 back at the end of the year. But what you've done is you've created clean energy and you've done these other things. So it's linking, you know, those kinds of things and creating, having an investment product that is accessible. I think if you've got anyone who's more inclined to just give it a try or to try and understand it, um, will provide a pathway for for people who you might not even say traditionally would be inclined that way. But then once they start and get going, they'll start to put it together. So one final question, looking into the crystal ball, what do you think impact investing looks like in Australia in five years or 10 years? Well, I hope it's not a thing that we don't have to call it something separate. So Mm -hmm. the call out to focus on impact just becomes increasingly the way that we pay attention, as we were saying, to what our investments are doing. And we try and move from creating negative impacts and harm and things we don't want to see in the world to the things that we do want to see in the world. And as we all start doing that with more deliberate intent, then impact investing disappears and it just becomes investing. Lovely. Erin, thank you very much for your time. It's been a great pleasure discussing impact investing with you. Thank you. Thanks, Nick.